Section four of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The South Pole by Roal Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section four. Plan and Preparations. Part one. The deity of success is a woman and she insists on being one, not courted. You've got to seize her and bear her off, instead of standing under her window with a mandolin. Rex Beach The North Pole is reached. In a flash the news spread over the world, the goal of which so many had dreamed, for which so many had labored and suffered and sacrificed their lives, was attained. It was in September, 1909, that the news reached us. At the same instant, I saw quite clearly that the original plan of the Fram's third voyage, the exploration of the North Polar Basin, hung in the balance. If the expedition was to be saved, it was necessary to act quickly and without hesitation. Just as rapidly as the message had traveled over the cables, I decided on my change of front, to turn to the right about, and face to the south. It was true that I had announced in my plan that the Fram's third voyage would be in every way a scientific expedition, and would have nothing to do with record-breaking. It was also true that many of the contributors who had so warmly supported me had done so with the original plan before them, but in view of the altered circumstances, and the small prospect I now had of obtaining funds for my original plan— I considered it neither mean nor unfair to my supporters to strike a blow that would at once put the whole enterprise on its feet, retrieve the heavy expenses that the expedition had already incurred, and save the contributions from being wasted. It was therefore with a clear conscience that I decided to postpone my original plan for a year or two, in order to try in the meantime to raise the funds that were still lacking. The North Pole— the last problem, but one of popular interest in polar exploration, was solved. If I was now to succeed in arousing interest in my undertaking, there was nothing left for me but to try to solve the last great problem, the South Pole. I know that I have been reproached for not having at once made the extended plan public, so that not only my supporters, but the explorers who were preparing to visit the same regions might have knowledge of it. I was well aware that these reproaches would come, and had therefore carefully weighed this side of the matter. As regards the former, the contributors to my expedition, my mind was soon at rest. They were all men of position, and above discussing the application of the sums they had dedicated to the enterprise. I knew that I enjoyed such confidence among these people that they would all judge the circumstances aright and know that when the time came, their contributions would be used for the purpose for which they were given. And I have already received countless proofs that I was not mistaken. Nor did I feel any great scruples with regard to the other Antarctic expeditions that were being planned at the time. I knew I should be able to inform Captain Scott of the extension of my plans before he left civilization, and therefore a few months sooner or later could be of no great importance. 
Scott's plan and equipment were so widely different from my own that I regarded the telegram that I sent him later, with the information that we were bound for the Antarctic regions, rather as a mark of courtesy than as a communication which might cause him to alter his program in the slightest degree. The British expedition was destined entirely for scientific research. The pole was only a side issue, whereas in my extended plan it was the main object. On this little detour, science would have to look after itself, but of course I knew very well that we could not reach the pole by the route I had determined to take without enriching, in a considerable degree, several branches of science. Our preparations were entirely different, and I doubt whether Captain Scott, with his great knowledge of Antarctic exploration, would have departed in any point from the experience he had gained, and altered his equipment in accordance with that which I found it best to employ. For I came far short of Scott, both in experience and means. As regards Lieutenant Charesse in the Canaan Maru, I understood it to be his plan to devote his whole attention to King Edward the Seventh land. After thus thoroughly considering these questions, I came to the conclusion I have stated, and my plan was irrevocably fixed. If at that juncture I had made my intention public, it would only have given occasion for a lot of newspaper discussion, and possibly have ended in the project being stifled at its birth. Everything had to be got ready quietly and calmly. My brother, upon whose absolute silence I could blindly rely, was the only person I led into the secret of my change of plan, and he did me many important services during the time when we alone shared the knowledge. Then Lieutenant Thorvald Nielsen, at that time first officer of the Fram, now her commander, returned home, and I considered it my duty to inform him immediately of my resolve. The way in which he received it made me feel safe in my choice of him. I saw that in him I had found not only a capable and trustworthy man, but a good comrade as well, and this was a point of the highest importance. If the relations between the chief and the second-in-command are good, much unpleasantness and many unnecessary worries can be avoided. Besides which, a good understanding in this quarter gives an example to the whole ship. It was a great relief to me when Captain Nielsen came home in January 1910, and was able to help, which he did with a good will, a capability, and a reliability that I have no words to commend. The following was the plan of the Fram's southern voyage. Departure from Norway, at latest before the middle of August. Madeira was to be the first and only place of call. From there a course was to be made on the best route for the sailing ship, for the Fram cannot be regarded as anything else. Southward through the Atlantic, and then to the east, passing to the south of the Cape of Good Hope and Australia, and finally pushing through the pack and into Ross Sea, about New Year, 1911. As a base of operations, I had chosen the most southerly point we could reach with the vessel, the Bay of Wales, in the Great Antarctic Barrier. We hoped to arrive here about January 15th. After having landed the selected shore party, about ten men, with materials for a house, equipment, and provisions for two years, the Fram was to go out again and up to Buenos Aires, in order to carry out from there an oceanographical voyage across the Atlantic to the coast of Africa and back. 
In October, she was to return to the Bay of Wales and take off the shore party. So much, but no more, could be settled beforehand. The further progress of the expedition could only be determined later, when the work in the South was finished. My knowledge of the Ross Barrier was due to descriptions alone, but I had so carefully studied all the literature that treats of these regions, that on first encountering this mighty mass of ice, I felt as if I had known it for many years. After thorough consideration, I fixed upon the Bay of Wales as a winter station, for several reasons. In the first place, because we could there go farther south in the ship than at any other point, a whole degree farther south than Scott could hope to get in McMurdo Sound, where he was to have his station, and this would be of very great importance in the subsequent sledge journey toward the Pole. Another great advantage was that we came right on to our field of work, and could see from our hut door the conditions and surface we should have to deal with. Besides this— I was justified in supposing that the surface southward, from this part of the barrier, would be considerably better, and offer fewer difficulties than the piled-up ice along the land. In addition, animal life in the Bay of Wales was, according to the descriptions, extraordinarily rich, and offered all the fresh meat we required in the form of seals, penguins, and so forth. Besides these purely technical and material advantages which the barrier seemed to possess as a winter station, it offered a specially favorable site for an investigation of the meteorological conditions, since here one would be unobstructed by land on all sides. It would be possible to study the character of the barrier by daily observations on the very spot better than anywhere else. Such interesting phenomena as the movement, feeding, and calving of this immense mass of ice could, of course, be studied very fully at this spot. Last, but not least, there was the enormous advantage that it was comparatively easy to reach in the vessel. No expedition had yet been prevented from coming in here. I knew that this plan of wintering on the barrier itself would be exposed to severe criticism as recklessness, foolhardiness, and so forth, for it was generally assumed that the barrier was afloat here, as in other places. Indeed, it was thought to be so, even by those who had themselves seen it. Shackleton's description of the conditions at the time of his visit did not seem very promising. Mile after mile had broken away, and he thanked God he had not made his camp there. Although I have a very great regard for Shackleton, his work, and his experience. I believe that in this case his conclusion was too hasty. Fortunately, I must add. For if, when Shackleton passed the Bay of Wales on January twenty-fourth, 1908, and saw the ice of the bay in process of breaking up and drifting out, he had waited a few hours, or at the most a couple of days, the problem of the South Pole would probably have been solved long before December 1911. With his keen sight and sound judgment, it would not have taken him long to determine that the inner part of the bay does not consist of floating barrier, but that the barrier there rests upon a good, solid foundation, probably in the form of small islands, skerries, or shoals, and from this point he and his able companions would have disposed of the South Polar question once for all. But circumstances willed it otherwise, and the veil was only lifted— not torn away. 
I had devoted special study to this peculiar formation in the barrier, and had arrived at the conclusion that the inlet that exists to-day in the Ross Barrier, under the name of the Bay of Wales, is nothing else than the self-same bite that was observed by Sir James Clark Ross. No doubt with great changes of outline, but still the same. For seventy years, then, this formation, with the exception of the pieces that had broken away, had persisted in the same place. I therefore concluded that it could be no accidental formation. What once, in the dawn of time, arrested the mighty stream of ice at this spot, and formed a lasting bay in its edge, which with few exceptions runs in an almost straight line, was not merely a passing whim of the fearful force that came crashing on, but something even stronger than that, something that was firmer than the hard ice, namely the solid land. Here in this spot, then, the barrier piled itself up and formed the bay we now call the Bay of Wales. The observations we made during our stay there confirmed the correctness of this theory. I therefore had no misgivings in placing our station on this part of the barrier. The plan of the shore party was, as soon as the hut was built and provisions landed, to carry supplies into the field, and lay down depots as far to the south as possible. I hoped to get such a quantity of provisions brought down to latitude eighty degrees south, that we should be able to regard this latitude as the real starting-place of the actual sledge-journey to the pole. We shall see later that this hope was more than fulfilled, and a labor many times greater than this was performed. By the time this depot work was accomplished, winter would be before us, and with the knowledge we had of the conditions in the Antarctic regions, every precaution would have to be taken to meet the coldest and probably the most stormy weather that any polar expedition had hitherto encountered. My object was, when winter had once set in, and everything in the station was in good working order, to concentrate all our forces upon the one object, that of reaching the pole. I intended to try to get people with me who were specially fitted for outdoor work in the cold. Even more necessary was it to find men who were experienced dog-drivers. I saw what a decisive bearing this would have on the result. There are advantages and disadvantages in having experienced people with one on an expedition like this. The advantages are obvious. If a variety of experiences are brought together and used with common sense, of course a great deal can be achieved. The experience of one man will often come in opportunely where that of another falls short. The experiences of several will supplement each other, and form something like a perfect whole. This is what I hope to obtain. But there is no rose without a thorn. If it has its advantages, it also has its drawbacks. The drawback to which one is liable in this case is that some one or other may think he possesses so much experience that every opinion but his own is worthless. It is, of course, regrettable when experience takes this turn, but with patience and common sense it can be broken of it. In any case, the advantages are so great and predominant that I had determined to have experienced men to the greatest extent possible. It was my plan to devote the entire winter to working at our outfit, and to get it as near to perfection as possible. Another thing to which we should have to give some time was the killing of a sufficient number of seals to provide fresh meat both for ourselves and our dogs for the whole time. Scurvy, 
the worst enemy of polar expeditions, must be kept off at all cost, and to achieve this, it was my intention to use fresh meat every day. It proved easy to carry out this rule, since every one, without exception, preferred seal meat to tinned foods. And when spring came, I hoped that my companions and I would be ready, fit and well, with an outfit complete in every way. The plan was to leave the station as early in the spring as possible. If we had set out to capture this record, we must at any cost get there first. Everything must be staked upon this. From the very moment when I had formed the plan, I had made up my mind that our course from the Bay of Wales must be set due south, and follow the same meridian, if possible, right up to the pole. The effect of this would be that we should traverse an entirely new region, and gain other results besides beating the record. I was greatly astonished to hear, on my return from the south, that some people had actually believed we had set our course from the Bay of Wales for Beardmore Glacier, Shackleton's route, and followed it to the south. Let me hasten to assure them that this idea never, for a single instant, crossed my mind when I made the plan. Scott had announced that he was going to take Shackleton's route, and that decided the matter. During our long stay at Framheim, not one of us ever hinted at the possibility of such a course. Without discussion, Scott's route was declared out of bounds. No, due south was our way and the country would have to be difficult indeed to stop our getting on to the plateau. Our plan was to go south, and not to leave the meridian unless we were forced to do so by insuperable difficulties. I foresaw, of course, that there would be some who would attack me, and accuse me of shabby rivalry, and so forth, and they would perhaps have had some shadow of justification, if we had really thought of taking Captain Scott's route. But it never occurred to us for a moment— our starting point lay 350 geographical miles from Scott's winter quarters in McMurdo Sound, so there could be no question of encroaching upon his sphere of action. Moreover, Professor Nansen, in his direct and convincing way, has put an end once for all to this twaddle, so that I need not dwell upon it any longer. I worked out the plan as here given at my home on Bundefjord, near Christiania, in September 1909 and as it was laid, so was it carried out to the last detail. That my estimate of the time it would take was not so very far out is proved by the final sentence of the plan. Thus, we shall be back from the polar journey on January 25th. It was on January 25th, 1912, that we came into Framheim after our successful journey to the pole. This was not the only time our calculations proved correct. Captain Nielsen showed himself to be a veritable magician in this way. While I contented myself with reckoning dates, he did not hesitate to go into hours. He calculated that we should reach the barrier on January fifteenth, 1911. This is a distance of 16,000 geographical miles from Norway. We were at the barrier on January fourteenth, one day before the time. There was not much wrong with that estimate." In accordance with the Storthing's resolution of February ninth, 1909, the Fram was lent for the use of the expedition, and a sum of 75,000 kroner, 4,132 pounds sterling, was voted for repairs and necessary alterations. 
The provisions were chosen with the greatest care, and packed with every precaution. All groceries were soldered in tin boxes, and then enclosed in strong wooden cases. The packing of tinned provisions is of enormous importance to a polar expedition. It is impossible to give too much attention to this part of the supplies. Any carelessness, any perfunctory packing on the part of the factory, will as a rule lead to scurvy. It is an interesting fact that on the four Norwegian polar expeditions, the three voyages of the Fram and the Gjoja voyage, not a single case of scurvy occurred. This is good evidence of the care with which these expeditions were provisioned. In this matter we owe a deep debt of gratitude, above all, to Professor Sophus Torup, who has always been the supervising authority in the matter of provisioning, this time as well as on the former occasions. Great praise is also due to the factories that supplied our tinned goods. By their excellent and conscientious work, they deserved well of the expedition. In this case, a part of the supplies was entrusted to a Stavanger factory, which, in addition to the goods supplied to order, with great generosity, placed at the disposal of the expedition provisions to the value of two thousand kroner, a hundred ten pounds. The other half of the ten foods required was ordered from a firm at Moss. The manager of this firm undertook at the same time to prepare the necessary pemmican for men and dogs, and executed this commission in a way that I cannot sufficiently praise. Thanks to this excellent preparation, the health both of men and dogs on the journey to the Pole was always remarkably good. The pemmican we took was essentially different from that which former expeditions had used. Previously, the pemmican had contained nothing but the desired mixture of dried meat and lard. Ours had, besides these, vegetables and oatmeal, an addition which greatly improves its flavor and, as far as we could judge, makes it easier to digest. This kind of pemmican was first produced for the use of the Norwegian army. It was intended to take the place of the emergency ration. The experiment was not concluded at the time the expedition left, but it may be hoped that the result has proved satisfactory. A more stimulating, nourishing, and appetizing food it would be impossible to find. But besides the pemmican for ourselves, that for our dogs was equally important, for they are just as liable to be attacked by scurvy as we men. The same care had, therefore, to be devoted to the preparation of their food. We obtained from Moss two kinds of pemmican, one made with fish and the other with meat. Both kinds contained, besides the dried fish or meat and lard, a certain proportion of dried milk and middlings. Both kinds were equally excellent, and the dogs were always in splendid condition. The pemmican was divided into rations of one pound, one-half ounces, and could be served out to the dogs as it was. But before we should be able to use this pemmican, we had a five-months voyage before us, and for this part of the expedition I had to look for a reliable supply of dried fish. This I found through the agent of the expedition at Tromso, Mr. Fritz Sapfa. Two well-known firms also placed large quantities of the best dried fish at my disposal. With all this excellent fish and some barrels of lard, we succeeded in bringing our dogs through in the best of condition. One of the most important of our preparations was to find good dogs. 
As I have said, I had to act with decision and promptitude if I was to succeed in getting everything in order. The day after my decision was made, therefore, I was on my way to Copenhagen, where the inspectors for Greenland, Messrs. Dogard Jensen and Benson, were to be found at that moment. The director of the Royal Greenland Trading Company, Mr. Rydberg, showed, as before, the most friendly interest in my undertaking, and gave the inspectors a free hand. I then negotiated with these gentlemen, and they undertook to provide one hundred of the finest Greenland dogs, and to deliver them in Norway in July 1910. The dog question was thus as good as solved, since the choice was placed in the most expert hands. I was personally acquainted with Inspector Dogard Jensen from former dealings with him, and knew that whatever he undertook would be performed with the greatest conscientiousness. The administration of the Royal Greenland Trading Company gave permission for the dogs to be conveyed free of charge on board the Hans Ejid and delivered at Christiansund. End of section 4